0: Hey, listeners, Miles here. I'm not in the episode you're about to hear because I was on vacation when it was recorded. The original plan was to record and patch in a cold open and an outro after the fact, but then Jay got super sick, and then we were both traveling, and then there were holidays. So I'll tell you what. Just pretend that you just listened to a normal cold open, ending with a mind-blowing revelation about the Marvel Universe. I won't tell if you won't. What? What? <laughs> I'm Jay Edidin, and I'm here to explain the X-Men, because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 174 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Miles is on vacation this week, so I am holding down the fort. And with me in the metaphorical studio, at least, the internet, is Ed Pisker. Hi, Ed.
1: Welcome. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me.
0: You are, I think at this point, best known for a series called Hip Hop Family Tree, which is a long and fairly detailed history of hip hop. But this month or possibly next month, I'm trying to think about the relative date, I guess technically still next month when this this episode comes out, you have an X book coming out, X-Men Grand Design. We talked a little bit about that in the cold open, but I'm wondering if you can just sum, sort of sum up the, the general concept of this for the listeners, because it's quite a project.
1: Yeah, Um Personally, as a cartoonist, I always set myself up with um, different challenges and I give myself a lot of intense kind of exercises to just try to make myself into a better artist, better cartoonist. Uh, so what X-Men Grand Design is, it's my attempt to take you know the first 280 or so issues of X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, whatever you want to call it, and um, make a graphic novel out of all of that stuff. You know, take all of this serialized magazine format stuff and turn it into one kind of cogent story with no Deus Ex Machina, um, using hindsight and foresight to just try to make like a really clear, um, understandable story.
0: So, I've 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 been lucky enough to, to be able to take a look at the first couple issues of these. And one of the things that I've noticed, um, you mentioned looking at them with hindsight and foresight, making them into a cogent story, is uh, you start very, very comparatively early. Like you, you end up giving a lot of a whole lot of background information and backstory, both on the stuff directly connected to the X Men and on sort of the greater role and relationship of mutants to the Marvel universe. And some of some of that is covered in the the issues that that are sort of that are included in the scope of the project, but some of it's outside of that. Where what are the points where you decided to sort of go outside? the central X-Men run and pull in other information and other stories. What determined that?
1: It's just all kind of by feeling, you know, like I wanted to have, as an example, um, let's have a tangible reason why uh, people fear mutants so much rather than just aesthetics or, or um, the fact that these people are potentially uh, dangerous. Um, And, They've established, you know, Namor the Submariner as, as uh, Marvel's first mutant or whatever, and I remember just, just knowing these comics like a big nerd. Um, I remember, you know, there was an old Human Torch comic where, where they battled and the Submariner flooded New York City. But since it was 1941, the cartoonists made sure to let you know that every single human being in New York City was able to evacuate before the flood came. I just thought that would be an interesting thing to to kind of inject uh, into into the the narrative. In some sense, this comic is kind of like my my Marvels or something. So so I wanted to include a lot of the Golden Age stuff that I like, um, just a just a general Marvel periphery. Because this I mean this very well may be the only thing I do for Marvel. So let's let's weave it all in there if
0: possible. As a thing to do, it, it covers an awful lot of ground. I feel like this is, if it's your only footprint, you've, you've got a really big one in the works.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm, I'm certainly putting all effort into the into the project, you know, seven days a week. I've been at it for about a year and a half. It's going to take about as much time to, to finish it. I'm basically directly at the point of no return. You know, like if I'm on a flimsy, wooden, uh, rickety bridge between two mountains or whatever uh you know i'm just past the halfway point
0: so this is a lot and it's it's i because i'm me and i'm going through this as as someone who actually just finished covering literally exactly the same scope like we just wrapped up the muir island saga last episode nice which is is kind of amazing timing i'm noticing the points where you shift from canon and you you go in other directions sure and you mentioned Namor, but I'm wondering if you can talk some about that because some of those are places where what was canon just didn't make a lot of sense or was obviously really you know confusing or contradictory. So the, the Eric the Red stuff, for instance. And I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to go into detail on that because I think the way the way you handle it is cool enough that that I'd, I'd like readers to to get to see that for themselves. But um, I'm wondering if you can talk about points where you looked at canon and decided that this didn't work and you needed to do something else.
1: Yeah, a lot of the project is is, is- of based on my own taste levels just being in comics being a creative person in this in this business certainly for as long as i've been in the game i kind of know how the people behind the books operate right so so there are some early things in x-men where you know like when Starenko introduces eric the red and then he basically leaves and and then you know the next issue you have they, they describe that Cyclops is pretending to be this character the whole time. And not only is he pretending to be this character, but everybody is so fearful of this character who we've never heard of, but they all pretend like they know who he is or something. That's just flat out mm-hmm. corny. Um, it's silly and it's not good silly. You know, it's, it's just clunky. So having, you know, foresight into like, like what, where that character was going or, or how he would show up again. You know, I did what I could to try to save that. And, um, you know, you and I, we, we met in New York City. Um, and mm-hmm. I believe on that Wednesday, you know, I, I had Chris Claremont all day. And you got to have Chris Claremont, like, by night. Um, yeah. So when I had... Chris Claremont it, <laughs>
0: by night is actually my, my favorite um, superhero.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I was at his house and we were talking this stuff, Um, I flat out told him, I'm like, you know, uh, some of this work is, it's going to need finessing, man, because, you know, he was, he was operating with such kind of kinetic speed that uh, he was kind of seat of the pants and didn't give things uh, maybe a second or third draft. And I told him, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to have to finesse some of this stuff. And he says, um, are we allowed to swear on here at all? Or
0: should I keep it? Yeah, absolutely. We are technically an M rated podcast. So swear to your heart's content. (laughs) Well, he was just like, well, Ed, there's no finessing. It's a clusterfuck.
1: Uh, <laughs> some, some of these sections that, that I, I brought up to him. Um, so in a way, I felt like he was almost like giving me permission to kind of play around with stuff to try to get it to sync up a little bit. And it wasn't a clusterfuck uh, based. solely. It was the clusterfuck wasn't on his shoulders per se. He had editorial requirements. Jim Shooter had things mm-hmm. in mind. You know, they, they, they were going to start X-Factor. So now we got to bring back Gene Grey. There's just all that kind of stuff that factors into what affected Chris Claremont's vision. Um, and those things, you know, they did, you know, quote unquote, happen. Uh, I say that because it's, it's lines on paper. So knowing that and, you know, actually liking some of that stuff, let me let me build it in and, and prepare readers a little bit better than they were when this stuff was all going down.
0: Yeah, I noticed, for instance, the Phoenix Force shows up almost immediately.
1: Yeah, there were those old Kirby villains like, you know, the Stranger, and then later on with when Roy Thomas got hold of the writing chores, there's that, that mutant master, and just establishing mm-hmm. all these alien characters that don't really fit into the, 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 the greater narrative in any sexy way, any elegant way. So I tried to make it a little bit, you know, have it make a little bit more sense by just, um, injecting the Phoenix Force in there early to give these aliens a reason to come to Earth um, and, and interacting with the with the X Men makes sense. Yeah, it's just like a weird puzzle.
0: You're obviously a huge X Men fan. I mean, there's so much knowledge and so much affection that, that that goes into this. And I'm wondering what was what was your jumping on point for X Men? What for you is sort of the beginning of of your relationship with the book? And what do you go back to sort of as as your default when you think of what X Men is? That's a
1: big question, uh, and yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a lot to that answer. I I, I grew up in a house that where I had comic books from my earliest memories. So um, the first one I remember being able to read myself in, like, first grade was X-Men 157. Being a kid born in 1982, I was in a pr- privileged place where I was able to get hold of classic X-Men in tandem mm-hmm. with the regular series. So I was reading all of that stuff. And um, I kept up with the regular series um, until I was a teenager, basically. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting here in a, in a room with um, 50 long boxes of comics, right? And, and I have, you know, every X-Men comic from, like, the mid-80s to uh, to the methadone stage, I call it, which is, you know, the Scott Lobdell uh, era, where it was like, okay, it's time to, like, wean myself off of this slowly, but... It was a constant in my life for the first, like, 12 years of my existence, maybe, maybe, maybe 14 years of existence. Uh, I played the NES game, man. I really dug the Genesis Sega one. But when I write these characters and the voice that they have, I still think mm-hmm. of um, the voice actors from the 1990s cartoon. <laughs> so, it, so it all kind of fit, factors into, into this thing.
0: You went into this with a lot of knowledge of X Men. Was there anything that was new to you that you hadn't really read much of before, or hadn't read in a long time when you started sort of going back to it for this project?
1: Uh, sh- yeah, definitely. There was the I am not a Roy Thomas fan by any stretch of the imagination, so I had to I had to really give that stuff a fair shake. I call it almost like a it's like an X Men dark period where they didn't even bother reprinting a lot of that stuff until the essentials came out. Um, you know, not talking about when X-Men went into reprints and, and started, I'm talking about, like, in, during my time. Um, yeah. You couldn't get a hold of, like, that Warner Roth stuff. And then, and then, you know, when you get a hold of it, you're like, oh, there's a reason why, like, uh, this stuff is, uh, is, you know, it's not that great. Yeah.
0: There's that one sweet spot that Neil Adams draws, though, which is... Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure.
1: I, like, but even with that, like, it, it's beautiful Neil Adams' art In in the the history of comics, um, probably one of the most incongruous tandems between a writer and artist would have been Roy Thomas and um, Neil Adams because the stories were very, very kind of juvenile. You know, they were were run of the mill. And then you had this like pretty lush artwork. And there's even evidence like if you have those exact issues and you see Mm -hmm. the backup stories, which I guess would have maybe have been the... The the Iceman origin uh, stories at that period I forget, but you see what comics art looked like at that time, and then you see Neil Adams work, and it's like it's pretty lush. But I also I like light light years ahead totally, and I I like the Barry Smith stuff aesthetically. I like Staranko a lot, but a lot of that is just like Mm -hmm. run of the mill journeyman comics. Um, But much of that 80s stuff I had to revisit because. You know, I read it once or twice, but had to give it another pass to just see how it fits in with earlier things, how I can make stuff that happens there that seemed abrupt fit in to the earlier part. So even at this point at about, you know, at Dave Cockrum's second run in terms of like my part of the comic that I'm making, I have to um, continue reading and rereading. Like whenever I start issue five, like I'll do another pass of rereading everything. To just see how I can make it all cozy. I
0: definitely know that feeling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, you know. It's it's pleasurable. You you wouldn't have this podcast if it wasn't if it wasn't a pleasure. And that's sort of how I feel about the comic. It was just like,
0: yeah, you know. no, it's great, and it's so great going back to stuff that I sort of read and impressed on like a baby duck as a teenager, <laughs> or or in college, and reading it now with you know another decade and a half of, of sensibilities and thoughts, and and seeing how how different it it feels and seems you know looking at it through that lens
1: yeah it's really it's really interesting like like um you know for this fourth issue i'm getting into the paul smith stuff and there's that one issue with with storm on the cover where she turns into a brood and it's basically i mean you know the brood are you know uh, an homage to alien yeah but that issue certainly and, and alien has has abortion themes mm-hmm. and and Certainly that issue of, uh, X-Men, it's completely like an abortion story where it's, where it's, you know, storm lamenting, like, like, should I kill this thing that's growing inside of me? Um, yeah. and you know, it's, it's in a comic that mostly kids read with, you know, the comics code authority on the cover, right? I think that's pretty interesting. And that's certainly not something I picked up on when I was six,
0: yeah, the stuff that slipped in and the allegories, and just even even the current events. Like I had not remembered the first time going through how very very profoundly the X Men are are rooted in their era, which actually is another thing I want to bring up because you're you're covering a lot of time here, and you're covering a lot of time where where the events in comics take place not exactly at the rate that the comics were coming out, but at the same time the originals were very very much rooted in, in contemporary America. Right. I this is actually just less a question than a compliment but I really appreciate how comparatively timeless the silver and early bronze age stuff that you're that you've gotten here feels if most of the adaptations um have you have you read many of the other sort of the other series that have, have tried to condense a lot of X-Men I think there's um there are a bunch that have mostly mostly looked at the silver age so there's First Class and there's X-Men season 1 and I think Children of the Atom is probably the one that strays the furthest from the original but all of them, when they update it, pretty much set it in a, a very specific time period. And and you keep that deliberately ambiguous. And I oh, so I do have a question attached to here, actually, um, yes. which is how did you interact with and, and go about dealing with reconciling the very variable timeline and passage of time in X-Men comics and in the Marvel Universe?
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it was essential um, to make it as timeless as possible just because it doesn't. It doesn't work uh if you apply real real world uh logic to it certainly when you have magneto running around as a kid in world war ii and then it's like you know i'm not fearful of any 80 year old man um so so you know there's there's like just that simple stuff but um you know i also have a kind of a a giant uh giant ego and i would like this to be a comic that can stand the test of time and last for a while. So I, I don't, I don't want like a future reader to feel that like, you know, the, the, the dialogue is uh, quaint or the fashions are uh, silly or, or, you know, just that kind of thing. I want I, I just want to, but that's not to say like, I don't want it to be generic either. And I'm not sure. Like it, it just, it's important for me first off to get this thing to work. Like when I started it, I'm just like, okay, to, in my mind, time in the marvel universe just absolutely doesn't operate the, with the same you know the physics as ours right in a lot of ways i'm just going to throw that out like like uh it's not important to to the 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 actual heart of the story now there will be people who cry there will be people who complain uh i am doing a fair bit of editing and i am retooling things here and there uh, what I say to them is that I'm not going to your house and burning down your Chris Claremont collection. So it's there. But as as a practicing creator, a big uh, kind of scheme that I have and a big interest of mine is not necessarily fulfilling the expectations of of regular readers who, who are going to come to the comic shop anyway. I am interested mm-hmm. in bringing people into the fold. That's kind of been how my entire career has worked. You know, I made a comic book about computer hacking. I made a comic book about hip hop. Uh, before that, I drew comics about the beat generation and about, uh, about basically Balkan civil war. So this is a way to get people who haven't really gave X-Men a shot because it's fairly unwieldy to somebody who isn't in a privileged position to have the time, money, and, uh, expense to, to, to kind of discover all of that X-Men stuff. So I'm making, you know, a a palatable version that somebody new to the game can, can, can check out. You know, I just discovered, have you ever heard of that hardcore history podcast?
0: Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't actually listened to it. It's
1: really pretty good. And I I would, um, I discovered it fairly recently. So I, I did these three issues that, that that you've seen, um, Mm -hmm. before I discovered it, but my comic works the way that podcast kind of works where um, you know, you're getting enough of the story, but obviously, with each thing that's being covered, you can get way more in depth. And to uh, to an obsessive comics fan, uh, I encourage you to to check out some of that stuff.
0: Yeah, I gotta say to listeners, um, one of the things that I really love looking at this is that it's coming from a very, very similar angle, just in terms of the scope to what we do, but almost the opposite approach. Because you know, we t- go at, miles, and I go into the comics, we take them apart. We look at the disparate points of continuity. We look at ways to reconcile that. We go into a lot of detail. And what Ed's doing here and does throughout these books is really, really streamline what there is. Um, it's not. If, am I spoiling it if I give the general premise? I think that's that's been out already. There have been a yeah, of, of course. So the the whole thing is is basically the Watcher explaining X Men continuity and X Men history. And as a result, it's very much focused on the big picture. And it's, I, I mean, I think it's a similar, similar narrative voice to a lot of, a lot of hip hop family tree, just yeah. in terms of scope and pacing. And it's not a guide to continuity, but it's a great overview of story. If you are someone who, I mean, I, I, it's ironic to say this, because if you are someone who has listened to the podcast and said, you yeah, know, this isn't really what I want. I want something more narrative. You're probably not actually listening to this episode. But if, if you are listening to this episode and you know someone like that who wants a, a more narrative, more accessible approach this is going to be a great thing to send their way because it is it's it's not going to line up perfectly with current continuity as we've we've discussed there are a lot of deviations from it professor xavier is a lot more sympathetic in here i think than um than he is in in most of actual x-men which which i appreciate i'm gonna have to try harder because because i kind of i kind of see him as you know misguided
1: do gooder, but you know some of that will come up a little bit later as well in, in in the in the overall story but it's a weird thing for an old-ass guy to send a bunch of teenagers into peril, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean, he's wrong and he screws up a lot in this. But I think situating situating that in context of his earlier history and making him more of the person who's who's isolated and maybe kind of out of touch with humanity but trying really hard to use the resources he has to do something right— Works, I, I think honestly, also the fact that he tells the X Men when he's going to fake his death yeah, th- does a lot to, to redeem this version in my eyes because that's that's always been kind of an event horizon for me.
1: Wasn't that so terrible in the old comic?
0: It's awful. He takes in a bunch of like orphans and kids who are super isolated, and then he abruptly pretends to die and he doesn't tell them what's going on except for one of them who he makes keep it secret from the rest. Like, yeah, that's that's such an absolute dick move. <laughs>
1: yeah and and once again like that's the other glaring example of like writers like like the creative team just like you know they're on the damn hamster wheel they're they're turning Mm -hmm. these comics in month in month out you know so and as soon as as soon as you get one issue done you've already spent that money on rent and groceries so you got to make another issue (laughs) uh let's bring professor x back but how do we do that uh we'll do it this way and and you know stan the man signed off on it so i'll, I'll we'll put some blame on him too um and then and then you know they, then they do this clunky thing once again th- this was it's come it's come from an era where um i guess fandom was existed to in some form or fashion but i don't know they were still magazine people and uh weren't necessarily expecting this stuff to exist forever so so uh
0: you know. yeah, the the twitter of the twitter of of the 60s and 70s and 80s were were kind of the letter columns I think. right
1: right yeah so you know this comic would come and go and you know they wouldn't necessarily uh believe that that I'm, i mean i'm sure they understood that some people would be have collected all of that stuff but
0: i you know what i'm saying they, they just uh yeah, worth. there wasn't the sense that you'll have access to Wikipedia and the knowledge of every <laughs> single appearance of every single character. Right, right. You know, we we gotta we gotta take all that stuff.
1: Like the context is important when when reading all that stuff. So I try not to crap on it too much. But when I came across that, I'm just like, this is freaking goofy. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not putting that into my thing.
0: There are still bits and pieces of goofiness. I I noticed you've got Namor getting thrown into the river and <laughs> recovering his true identity.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. There's stuff that I'm pretty unapologetically into that I could never defend. You know, there's some of those things like that Eric Red thing, the Changeling thing, like uh, Mm -hmm. that's, I have a limit.
0: You've got a lot of panels in here and a lot of, a lot of moments that str- go in other directions, but you've also got a lot of moments that very recognizably recreate really iconic moments or covers or individual panels from X-Men. And occasionally from other comics. Um, I'm noticing Namor um, doing the the Superman cover, uh, car throwing. Oh, here. yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but I forgot about that
0: what were what were some things that you went in and knew you wanted to make your own version of um specific iconic moments or specific iconic images?
1: you know honest to goodness i don't I don't think I went into this project um with with those thoughts or intentions at all. um I think in a lot of ways, it was almost the opposite where um I do not profess to be um the smartest person. In, in, in the room by, by any stretch And I carry that over with the baggage That I have of making this X-Men comic With like, you know, Marvel's greatest Creatives uh, You know, over the decades Who who've put their stamps on the thing So I kind of went into it with an approach Of like, okay, if I have uh, For instance, the Sentinels Have to fly into the sun mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to reinvent that wheel So I'm going to use A pretty close version of like What you Neil know, Adams did Doing my, doing my hip hop comics uh, over the past couple of years, it really gave me a um, uh, kind of postmodern sense of uh, the acceptability of sampling, uh, mm-hmm. as they call it in, in, in hip hop um, culture. So I'm going to sample things like I can't draw. I can't in my mind's eye think of a better way to have Warren Worthington kind of kind of hide his wings and stuff than the shot that kirby did in the very first issue of x-men one uh so i'm basically gonna gonna lift that to a certain extent and just kind of put my own spin on it so i think a big part of what i wanted to do with this project is pay some homage to almost every um, artistic uh, hand that went into the entire history of, of of the comics so there will be like little moments like i Some and some of it might even be just just uh, stuff that I noticed, like like my Banshee, like when you first see Banshee to me, that's like 1992 Rob Liefeld hair that he's sporting. And there's a there's a whole lot of little versions of that stuff that I put into the comic to one, keep it keep it fun for myself Two pay, pay some nods, give some props to people who came before me.
0: You mentioned Rob Liefeld. And when we talked at New York Comic-Con, one of the things you brought up that was really interesting was why you'd specifically liked his art and the art of that era. And we're, we're just coming up on that. Or, or actually, he's just wrapped up New Mutants. We're really coming up on the Jim Lee Liefeld, all of the guys who are going to run off and form image in a, in a bit. And that's something that I've talked about on the show and Miles has talked about on the show, both of us sort of having a lot of trouble finding affection for. But I really, really loved what you brought up about it and what you brought up specifically about what it was like to find that art as a kid who wanted to make comics. And I'm wondering if you can go into that a little bit here.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And and this is not a condemnation. And this is not a backhanded compliment or anything uh, silly and negative. It's truly uh, said, said with love and blah, blah, blah. So after that little preamble at the beginning, seeing the work of Uh, McFarlane, uh, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee is divorced from this because he's the opposite. He, his stuff was unattainable. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a, there was a clunkiness. There was a wonkiness to, um, that early, uh, McFarlane, Liefeld stuff that made many of my peers who are currently making comics. It gave us all some sense that, um, that the, that comics was an attainable, uh, profession. There, like y- you got some sense that you'll, you could, you could kind of draw like that. You could see that it's off, but there's a real charm and a real energy to it that is inspiring. And, um, I think I said it when, when we talked in New York, you know, I was not a part of any kind of comics fandom, Uh, I might have had a friend or two who dug comics, but I was basically, you know, by myself going to the grocery store with mom and dad and choosing a comic or two, uh, you know, while while they were shopping. And I actively chose those comics um, because they kind of stood out from all the John Buscema house style uh, wannabes in the the 80s and just, you know, revisiting that material. I think that's what it was like it, it created a real sense that um you know the, these guys at the time they 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 drew in a way that you felt like you would be able to to kind of reach that level or something
0: that makes a lot of sense
1: yeah and once again that is not an insult you know a lot of people it's like fashionable to talk shit uh mm-hmm. on those guys and and i it's impossible for me to because i i see I see the, uh, the the true value of, of the work, and it's not it doesn't necessarily have to do with um, with comics as 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 narrative or, or or something like that. It's kind of it's a different thing. It's it's something different that I take out. It's it's purely visual, I would say, for the most part.
0: Well, and if it's something that's grabbing people and you know leading them to pick up the comic and think I could tell this guy, I could I could tell stories like this, I could make this. That's huge. That's I mean that's that's a generation of of comics artists, and it's it's a context that. Something that I hadn't really considered. I just got to to the part with uh, Banshee's hair in issue two, and yeah, that is absolutely Liefeld <laughs> hair. It's got that mane. <laughs>
1: when he used to ink himself, that you know, that's my favorite Liefeld mm-hmm. when he when he uh, inked himself like uh, on New Mutants and X Force.
0: Yeah, he did. He did. He did. I think like one issue of X Factor too, where he was. Yeah, just closely associated with because because Jean just has that impossible hair in it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, you know, I can't say enough good stuff about it. And and uh, you know, I would never have been able to articulate that to you when I was in 3rd grade, uh, you know, when 1991 was going down. All that I would have said back then was like this stuff looks really exciting. And uh, you know, I just got the uh that spawn vault edition uh where it has 7 issues of uh Todd McFarlane's uh artwork uh, in in printed two size of the oh, way that he put it together and uh you know the stuff still holds up it's still uh incredibly exciting to look at and it's you know it's totally imprinted in my brain
0: so speaking of exciting stuff going through grand design plotting it out going back to the issues was there any stuff that you were just really excited about telling that you, you knew from the start how you wanted to handle or you've been wanting to draw wanting to approach like what were the moments that you've come to in making this that were sort of the ones you were waiting for going in
1: you know, it, it's, it's always fun to just I, – I almost feel like you don't – if you, as a, as a fan, as an artist, when you draw a character, I feel like the drawing's not done um, until it's, it's in color. That's something I discovered when I put together this, this piece of fan art that had all the X-Men in it that I kind of tweeted to even make this book possible. Mm-hmm. It was the first time in my professional life where I drew Wolverine and and colored him with the red and blue costume. And as I was coloring it, I'm like, okay, this is Wolverine, a black and white drawing. It it just, it just doesn't work. So just, you know, start getting into that third issue, uh, which is going to, you know, that's going to come out, you know, in 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, and it starts with giant size X-Men and just, you know, we'll go on from there. Just handling that stuff was, was pretty cool. Um, uh, something I was looking forward to, and and you know, like I needed to do a lot of heavy lifting on those first uh, on the issues that are going to come out, you know, this first cycle. Yeah. Um, but the primo stuff that um, most people would say it wouldn't be controversial to say that you know that John Byrne era that is a golden age of sorts. Mm-hmm. So it's like, man, let, uh, let me, let me do my spin on that for sure. You know, but even from the very beginning, one of the images that I was kind of excited to get to was when the old team was kind of mixed up in all those vines on Krakoa.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had this idea of making them uh very gaunt and, and, and emaciated and sucked up and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I I don't know. I, I don't quite think I accomplished it the way that I saw in my head, but I totally like the way that it turned out. Um, I think what I, what I saw in my head, I kind of wanted to, I started working on it before, before Stranger Things came out, season one. Uh-huh. And there's like the part where, uh, the characters have like those, um, like little Will Byers has that, that tentacle of vines like down his throat. Yeah. I think they handled it really great on the screen, but it just looked too, phallic you know what i'm saying like just having these like tubes in people's mouths like in the mouths open wide and stuff and i'm like it's just like you know what marvel isn't like these editors are going to hassle me for that um so i just had to change my approach
0: the vines are are much more i mean they they look more like foliage and less like sort of weird tentacle monsters than the original they're kind of pretty they've got leaves and stuff
1: (laughs) i forget what i was i was looking at um I was looking at like RJ Tintin comics because I was like, uh, this guy draws great foliage, and it's and he's like very iconic, and he uses very spare lines. And I'm looking at that stuff. That's the mm-hmm. thing with with um with this entire project. I'm kind of incorporating techniques and and um, storytelling mechanics that span a breadth of comics like way beyond
0: Marvel. Yeah. I noticed the Windsor, the Windsor McKay dream sequence. Oh
1: yeah, totally. Totally. Like I was, I'm super proud to have that in, um, in the, in the comic. And I think it works in a very, in a perfect place. And then it was also, you, you know, I had a cover of, of a comic that I, you know, was from that dark period of uh, X-Men that was just like extremely corny. So I, I feel like I did the best that I could to make it work, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's a like, Windsor McKay. There's, uh, uh, that's the most. That's super. That's an obvious one, yeah. just because of the structure. Right. But then there's like there's like Carl Barks stuff in there. There's Erj's work. There's a little bit of Hal Foster. Kind of kind of the whole storytelling approach is a Hal Foster kind of thing, where it's like a lot of the narrative is in the caption, and then and then you see an action that you know. of Course, it's not sh- show and tell, but it's like the the image fits in with the the previous caption. Yeah, but, but each page of the entire series is designed to, to look and feel kind of like a broadsheet Sunday comics page from like the 40s when the funnies, when, when each strip would occupy a full broadsheet. That's how I designed each page of Grand Design to kind of work as a single unit that has a kind of beginning, middle and end. And then, and then you read them all and then it builds the greater the greater narrative, but each one is like a unit unto itself. Mm
0: -hmm. So while we're talking about that and and artistic approach, you did everything on this. This is this, you drew, wrote, lettered, colored the entire thing. I'm trying to think of whether that's something we've ever seen on an X book before.
1: It's never, it's never been on an X book. Probably the closest you had would be like Barry Windsor Smith on, um, Marvel comics presents doing the weapon X thing Mm -hmm. because he did everything but the lettering. Yeah but you know, the only other uh, example in a, in a Marvel comic that we found was, um, I got, I have it here. Um, my pal Jim Rugg brought it over. It was a uh, Marvel team up 96, uh, where Spider-Man and Howard the duck team up. And it's, uh, Alan Kupperberg uh, completely did all the creative on that. Huh. Um, so, so it's, that came out in 1980. So it's the first time since 1980. And you know what, if I wanted to, um, be jerky, mm-hmm. uh, he he didn't ink the cover. Oh. Uh so so screw him. <laughs> and he didn't design the logo either. So you went, like, "Oh,
0: forget that guy." All right. So so going further with this. You mentioned the broadsheet and this these are going to be oversized, right? The issues are going to be standard. Okay. It's going to be the issues are going to be standard, but
1: um the the collection is going to be in basically the the, the hip hop family tree format, which is like a 9 by 13 It's going to be okay. probably like double double the size. Yeah. Man, if they would have let me do uh, something like those, uh, like the little Nemo book, or uh, or um, those those giant reprints, man, I that would have so totally gone cool. for that. Yeah, maybe when my, you know my artist edition uh, comes out for the thing, that that's the approach. Yeah, you're
0: gonna have to get IDW to license it though. Totally.
1: Yeah, it just ha- it just has to you know like a fine wine, it has to age a little bit. Marvel has to squeeze every drop of money out of it before they'll uh, they'll you know let IDW do something with it, but.
0: The turnover is getting faster. I mean, I have a, a Daredevil Artist Edition that's the the Wade Somni stuff. So, yeah, that's within yeah. the last decade. So we can we can say, you know, maybe by, by like twenty twenty eight or so. <laughs> yeah. So, and you you talked again when we talked in New York. You talked a lot about the printing decisions that went into this book, and that's something that we don't tend to cover a lot on the show, just because we're usually talking about reprints and stuff that's been printed from scans from comics or from original films, and so it's gone through so many layers of different editing and printing that the deliberate decision-making gets kind of, kind of ends up taking a backseat to damage control. But you were, that that was something that you went into really deliberately with this. And, and I'm, I'd love to if you, if you can give listeners sort of a, a window into that process and the considerations that went into it.
1: Sure. Um You're, you're talking about like the, the, uh, the, the aesthetic of, um of the thing or like how it's going to actually.
0: Um, the, the aesthetic, the paper you were, you were and talking about the paper stock and stuff too.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, shop owners who may be listening, uh, might have discovered that, um, the, the, the final order cutoff for for the book came significantly earlier than, than standard operating procedure. And that was because this book is going to be printed a little bit differently than, than standard books. Um, because, uh, the approach that I'm giving this thing is in su- in a small way mimicking the, the printing techniques of a bygone era, and um, you would completely destroy any hint of you 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 would make that aesthetic silly if it was printed on the the kind of standard um, glossy paper mm-hmm. that you know the the, the regular uh, big two publishes their stuff on. So we needed more time built in for the printing of the thing. So it's going to be a classic comic, you know. I have more comics that are that are like this than than the stuff that comes out now, which is to say, there's going to be a glossy cover, pretty close to newsprint paper. You know, I've I've perfected the I perfected a lot of like little things um, with the aesthetic approach by um, we published uh, a year's worth of um, monthly Hip Hop Family Tree comics at regular standard format. So. I had to retool a lot of things. Like I had to retool the, the, the black incline because it just, uh, on that paper just didn't show up well. So there are some issues that are very like faded beyond, uh, comfortable reading. So, so I had 12 issues to play with and and to like get the color completely right to where it's not like, I'm not trying to affect the kind of bad printing that, um, that you would expect from, from an old comic where, you know, the plates are shifted
0: and yeah. And it's not, it's not fake worn out. It looks, it looks, the colors are bright. They're just, they're just tonal in the ways that they would have been at that point.
1: Yeah. Sort of, you know, the Lichtenstein approach or, or, or whatever. He kind of using the same, the same palette. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy who needs limitations or else I would just get corrupted by choice. (laughs) Uh, If I was um, the idea of using Photoshop to color and having a coloring box of 3 million crayons, would uh screw me up and you know and that's a conservative number by the way i'm sure it's probably hundreds of millions of colors you could get so you know like i'm playing around with the format a lot but i'm not playing with it in a way that i think would turn people uh away from it at a knee jerk if that makes sense you know my another kind of aesthetic scheme that i've had my whole life is to kind of be formally experimental but not so far you know where i'm like a People make like you know their handmade comics or whatever, who are kind of so obtuse that uh, you know they you need you need them on hand to explain what the hell it is you just read. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not that guy.
0: So, you talked about you know the stuff that you figured out in doing Hip Hop Family Tree that that came into your choices in terms of if coloring and design on, on X Men Grand Design, and I wonder, um if you can talk some about storytelling and stuff that techniques that you revined on that. Cause again, this, this feels stylistically like a very direct descendant.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the, the funny thing about the hip hop family tree stuff though, is that um, for inspiration, what I was looking to was um, because, you know, it's about the history of hip hop music. Right. Um, so I'm using, there are, there are hundreds of characters in, in the thing uh, and I needed to figure out. I needed good examples where people were juggling hundreds of characters in pleasing ways. Mm-hmm. So the best stuff that I could come up with in, in comics was like Larry Hama's GI Joe and uh, and Chris Claremont's X Men. So it's this weird cyclical thing for me, or something, where my fandom of of X Men kind of factored into the storytelling approach of Hip Hop Family Tree in a in a in a in a kind of fashion though you would read it and, and not get that from it from the hip hop comics, I don't think. But I have well beyond ten thousand hours practice juggling a hundred characters per book with the hip hop family tree stuff. So I'm able to take a lot of stuff that I learned while putting that together into into this comic, you know, X Men Grand Design. And the new stuff that I'm learning uh, because that's that's my career in a nutshell is I am forever a student. Um, I will never call myself a master. I'm, there's always more to learn. But what I'm learning now as I put together this this X-Men comic is because there's so much original source material and there's so much that I need to cover. And originally, I, I told Marvel that I wanted 300 pages to do this. And they said that they were comfortable <laughs> giving me 240. What I'm learning now is to just I'm learning the value of like what what you can accomplish with a single panel Mm -hmm. in my other work. I just, I had all the time in the world. I had uh, any moment I wanted to cover could be 10 pages. If I felt like it using a lot of things I learned from hip hop family tree to put this X-Men thing together. But I'm also in this educational phase of just really figuring out what I can accomplish with just, you know, a single page of comics, a single panel, a single image. There's, there's not one throwaway panel in X Men Grand Design, which is going to make for a, a very dense reading experience, yeah. But I think it'll also reward um, rereading and make it an enjoyable thing. Where a lot of comics are very decompressed, and um, you know, you, you spend twenty minutes with it or something, you, you're going to have to you're going to have to sit with it for a while. And I, I have a lot of respect for for, for my readers, so I'm not necessarily spelling everything out for you in an abc kind of way so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to turn back a little bit sometimes man you're gonna have to revisit the the comic again in the future uh out of pleasure i would i I would hope but you know superficially you'll you'll get the whole story as you read through it but there's a lot in there and some of it is just purely visual that uh upon rereading you'll see and just uh you know it'll all become clearer and clearer
0: so you talked a little bit about the crossover and sensibilities and techniques between telling stories about the X-Men and telling stories about hip hop. And it seems like, and we've, we've seen, and there's been a lot of discussion just in context of Marvel's hip hop covers and, and other projects and about the interrelationship and interaction between those two things. And I, I feel like the people listening to this podcast, I, I know that some of, some of y'all are hip hop fans, but I suspect that they are coming, what, what I know is that they're coming definitely from the the comics end of that, whether or not hip hop... So, a question going in here is: What you'd recommend as an inroad for for someone who who read and loved X Men, knew a lot about it, you know, liked it for a lot of the same reasons you did, but wasn't necessarily as familiar with hip hop? Like, where would you send them to get started?
1: Jeez, you know, I don't know. Like, see, this kind of thing, it's like it's like in my uh, it's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. So, what I could say is like one of the probably the the greatest like kind of masterpiece albums would be. I like, uh, it's called, uh, Illmatic by, by Nas. And it's not, but it's a weird thing too. And now that I think about it, because there's not like a, there's not like a danceable hip hop club song, you know, there's <laughs> nothing with a hook, but it's just an incredible album. So, you know, you got me on the spot. Um, and I just don't know how I would answer like music is so personal, you know, yeah. like, because like, like you find out that, um, somebody likes a certain thing and well, I'm I'm very judgmental so I'm like, oh, they like what? Yo, they're corny. So so like I I hesitate to, to steer anybody in a direction mm-hmm. um with that stuff. You know? The the beauty about this uh, world we live in now is you could just go on YouTube and um and give anything a shot, you know? Like I come from that era where you had to plunk down $20 and take a shot. And then you either get disappointed or not.
0: Yeah, if you're on, if, if you were lucky, I had a friend who would who would tape their CDs for you.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. That was that was incredibly important.
0: Let's see, so I think I'm gonna. Turn this over to listener questions. At this point, we put out a call for those. Um, we've had a, a bunch of folks respond, mostly people who've, who've sent in a lot of questions. And this one, this is a good question because actually, you're just about to start covering this material as you go into issue four. Dave on Twitter, who is wondering if Doug Ramsey and Kitty Pride were in on the phone freaking scene.
1: <laughs> you know, like uh, they have that. Whoever, whoever sent that question in, mm-hmm. they have, um, they have a greater like. Would that have been in New Mut? No, actually, I, 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 know what they're talking about. I don't know how to answer that. I apologize. It's okay.
0: So, so Dave, I'll say, keep your personal headcanon for that one.
1: You, you can, can, can I can I say something real yeah, quick? Yeah, absolutely. Like I um, like in this era that I am covering, mm-hmm. it is really tough. Like the X Men are, you know, they're on in, on uh, the, they're dealing with the Brood and. It's actually there's a there's a big uh, plot hole that I sort of uncovered where where Charles Xavier is up there kind of with them mm-hmm. and then but the next time you see him after the Paul Smith stuff when they come back to Earth he's on Earth and he establishes the New Mutants.
0: There's the question of how he get how and when he gets back,
1: right? And then like another issue or two later, then there's like the the Doug Ramsey thing and then and then like Colossus is like oh does. Does she like him more than me? Kind of, and it's like,
0: well, Doug's established a little bit earlier because he and Kitty are friends before he joins the New Mutants. Is it done? Is it done in uh,
1: New Mutants, or is it done in X Men?
0: No, I think they're 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 friends in X Men. And then he, um, they, they pick him up in New Mutants in the issue where Warlock first appears because they need to find someone who can communicate with Warlock, and they, they figure out that that Doug's a mutant, and uh-huh. they, they drag, basically drag him over and are like, "So you're a mutant? Your life's over. Please talk to this alien for us." <laughs> yeah, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, um,
1: at this point now, I have, I have other comics that I have to juggle mm. along with Uncanny X Men, so it's like, man, how am I going to get? some of this new mutant stuff to work and still fit in my wider narrative. So it's like, there's a question of like, is Doug Ramsey even going to be in my thing? How does that, how does that add to the narrative that I'm telling?
0: Yeah. You're, you're about to go from there being one X-Men series to four. Totally. Totally. And it's like, I have to identify a
1: kind of arc for each of these issues Mm -hmm. to to kind of fit into The, the stuff I choose to cover will correspond with the themes that I kind of discovered when reading you know, these 50 issues at a clip. So it's an interesting storytelling approach. Uh, it's completely impossible to give everybody everything they, they want or need, but certainly all the, all the major bullet points are gonna be covered.
0: So a, a lot of these are, are, are sort of crossover questions. So we've got from 72 uh, 72546 on Tumblr, um, is wondering if you had to recast the original five X-Men with hip hop artists, which would be whom? I
1: I have a simple answer and it would be that the public enemy is my favorite rap group. And, um, at any given moment, you could choose five guys out of that and put them in there. That's fine with me. I think the bigger question would be like, who's the, uh, which, which of the X-Men would flavor Flav be? You know, I guess, uh, I guess he would be like, perhaps beast. I don't know. I say beast because I see beast as a kind of comic relief. In, 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 the, in the early stuff, when he's kind of like a, and also ran Ben Grimm before they mm-hmm. figured out that he was a smarty pants. Yeah. Which, which would have been around the same time where Professor Xavier, there's like that panel or two at the end of, I think, issue three or four, where, where he's like lamenting that he can't tell Jean Grey how much he loves her or whatever.
0: Uh, and uh yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's all- yeah thanks
0: for cutting that by
1: the way yeah of course that would never have been in there like you know i think stan recognized that that was clunky and weird and there was just a different that was a totally different era man where like uh underage uh relationships and stuff were like i guess less frowned upon maybe and the, the reason i say that is because i just read um before bed i've been reading uh, tales from the crypt comics, and, and um there's a story where this underage girl is like secretly married to her, her um, rich uncle's chauffeur driver, but they have to keep the marriage secret. And if he finds out like the only danger of in their lives is that the marriage will be annulled. Not that the guy will like go to jail or, you know,
0: Ah. it's
1: a very weird, very weird time. It's
0: definitely a, a creepier decade for sure. That so sort of brings a whole total dimension to the, the creep factor in Tales from the Crypt, though. It's like, it's horror on new levels. <laughs> right. The, the old
1: guys who were um, putting it together. that It's like a level of horror that they didn't even consider. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So weird.
0: Someone would like to know if you have seen the Magneto mural on Penn Avenue.
1: Yeah, for sure. They're talking about something that's actually here in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, yeah, so I didn't see it in person or anything. But, you know,
0: it looks nice. You know, it's Jim Lee. Yeah, it's cool. Sure. When does the first issue of X-Men Grand Design come out? When when can we find it? It's going to come out on uh December 20th
1: and issue 2 is going to come out uh 2 weeks after after that. Issue 1 that's like that's like the measuring jab to just get a sense of the reader and then uh you know when issue 2 comes out that's the one that's going to be the knockout punch.
0: All right. And they're, they're coming out in pairs, right? Basically December, January for three years?
1: Uh, you know, I don't think it's going to take that long because, uh, because I have that third issue done and I'm working on the fourth. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be like a two-year total. So, like, so I'm not sure when the next batch will come out, but maybe, maybe it'll be three years. But I, I suspect it's going to be earlier. But you are correct. It's like a trilogy of two-issue miniseries or two-issue arcs. So the first arc comes out December, January, then there will be some time in between the next two.
0: Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Thank you for your time. It's been great. And for the previews, this is a phenomenally cool comic. And it's it's nice to be able to talk about one that's coming out that I can just say, if you were listening and you like this podcast, you will probably like this comic. I,
1: I really appreciate you, first off, taking the time to promote the the comic and everything.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, again, it's it's an interesting project. And I feel like it's a project that's I I am, I am so, so, thank you for making a comic for which I am precisely the target audience. I mean,
1: I was going to say that actually, like I had you and Miles in mind in a lot of ways as I was putting this, this together, I wanted to have the spirit of X-Men. I wanted to be faithful to X-Men, but I also for, for brevity's sake and also just for
0: zeitgeist,
1: things have to change to make it work.
0: Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's, the, that's the secret of any good adaptation is that you you stay true to the to the concept and the spirit but not beholden to the detail.
1: Exactly, and and I, I consider Claremont's X-Men to be a good piece of perhaps modern-day mythology. And how does mythology work but get passed down from generation to generation, ha- have different word of mouth associated? It's a kind of a game of telephone. And you and Miles were, were in mind a lot when there were things that I would have to change. And I'm like, if Jay and Miles think this is whack then it's whack like there's no uh there's no two ways about it so I appreciate you having um, some nice things to say about it just for the listeners at home like I'm not holding any weapons on you or anything like that so I thank you
0: yeah no I gotta say like we were were talking about this in New York too but um the first times we were directly interacting people keep on trying to basically make us fight on Twitter (laughs) yeah this person is is is, is stepping on your territory it's like first of all the X men are confusing enough for everybody. <laughs> there, there is no there is no claim here. This is anyone anyone who wants it on this should get in on this. But second, yeah, it's such a different thing and I feel like they're they're so so complementary in 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 approach and an angle and and so such such different ways of interacting with and celebrating and sort of rediscovering that old formative material. Thank you. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on. Um, we will link to you online in the, the visual companion to this, this episode, which if you're listening on a streaming service or something like that, you can find on ex- at explainthexmen.com pretty much however you want to spell it. <laughs>
1: oh, that's awesome. Good for you. See, that's, that's your yeah. editorial approach, you know, like uh, having, having the foresight to, uh, to have like every domain name or whatever.
0: Well it's it's spelled without an E, and because it's it's you know explain the X-Men, right. But we realized really early on that that doesn't always translate to audio. right. so we we tried to be pretty careful about that. Um we also technically own PeterCorbo.com, dot com, but still, still, still working out what to do with that one. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, oh, I should also say I, I I noticed that he he made a significant appearance in your comic, and I should I should tell our listeners because he is he is a special favorite. He is the most confident man in the Marvel universe. so.
1: <laughs> he's a tough guy to 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 get a handle on because he's kind of elusive to me
0: uh in a lot of ways like I,
1: I just don't know much about him so so the way that i think of him in my comic is he's like the um elon musk he's like elon musk <laughs> of, of uh, so it's like it's not he's not a weapons dude like stark because you know they, yeah. they make that they make that claim with elon that he's like the tony stark of real life or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. but. But to me, Peter Corbeau is like the Elon Musk of uh, the, the Marvel Universe or whatever.
0: I guess, although I don't know that he's really much of an entrepreneur. I think he, he mostly is just really into the, the science and sometimes that involves space. We refer to him regularly as the you know, super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau <laughs> just because he does everything. He's got like you know, four Nobel Prizes. He's got Starcore. He was Bruce Banner's college roommate randomly. He, he may or may not have swam most of the way across the Atlantic Ocean.
1: I made him more entrepreneurial in my comic. Just, um, just so that he had access to a goddamn space shuttle, so that they could get up there, you know. Because, like, I didn't think that that was. Something tells me that, and I'm not like one of those. <laughs> I'm not one of those plausible people. Like, you know, there's if you uh, if you um, read Hitchcock trufo, like Hitchcock is always talking about people he calls the plausibles, like the people who try to put like a real world spin on, uh, on stories and stuff. And I'm not so steeped in, in that myself. Like, I'm not that kind of guy. But when the X Men kind of grab a space shuttle and go confront the Sentinels and and um, Stephen Lang, yeah, uh, I just don't think they there could have been a second draft to that. And, and my kind of solution to that <laughs> my my solution to that was just uh, you know make make Peter Corbeau have access to his own damn space shuttle.
0: That that fixes a lot of that. Although although man, this this is one of the few places where I do have to like actively suppress my tendency to nitpick because. Space travel and history of space travel is is so much of the other thing I'm a big nerd about. Oh, cool! Be like, well, we need so much more time, and just you know, the expense alone. And <laughs> 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 but, but yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, with that. Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and usually Portland, Oregon, but this week, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. You can also check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you want us to help us stay on the air and ad-free, you should check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Those are the folks who keep us going, and we really, really appreciate it. I'll be back next week, when Jay and I will take a look at the suspiciously heterosexual X-Men True Friends miniseries.